Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us uh, in worship on the Super Bowl Sunday. Go Niners. <laughs> With that being said, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. And uh, please turn to the book of Luke. And we're in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24 as we continue our study through Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 882 if you are using a church Bible, page 882. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and as we come to your word, Lord, we know that, that it can be the case that our hearts can um, often rebel against what's in it. And so we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, God, to convict us, to shape and transform our lives and our hearts. Lord, we need your grace to understand the love of Jesus Christ and, and to behold his glory so uh, that he might outshine uh, everything else. And so we ask that you would use this passage and that you would do a mighty work uh, even through the unclean lips of this preacher. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are entering into some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he will be uh, betrayed and arrested, stripped and tortured, uh, condemned and crucified for sins that are not his own. These are some of Jesus' final words to his followers, and they contain uh, something of utmost importance, uh, perhaps even a concept that is the most crucial thing for Christian living and the most telling of where we are truly at within the faith. It's something that's easy to understand and yet very difficult to genuinely obey from the heart, uh, so much so that it requires a transformation. But it's something that uh, uh, even a child can grasp the concept of, and yet can, there can be this force against us, uh, within us, that kicks against it mightily. It may be that there's nothing more revealing about what we believe in our lives than if we do take this teaching of Jesus to heart, and it involves a concept of greatness. How do we define true greatness? What is it that makes one great? What is it that makes life worth living? What should we do as believers? Uh, what should we be ambitious for? And how does the Son of God define and redefine these things for us before he gives his life to us? The answers of which we hope to find within this passage. We read in verse 23. And they began to question one another uh, which of them it could be who was going to do this. That's the betrayal. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here we have which one of us is a traitor, which one of us is the greatest, within almost the same breath. Two conflicting questions living right next to each other. Uh, I want you to notice in these opening verses uh, just this bend within the human heart towards self-seeking, uh, personal aggrandizement, a desire to be admired, a hunger for praise, status, etc., etc. I want us to notice this bend within our hearts and which can even rear its ugly head in the most spiritual of moments. And this is a context of this dispute the disciples are having about which one of them should be regarded as the greatest. The context is actually a, a, this religious high point, this spiritual peak. It happens at the very first Lord's table, communion. 
The argument occurs right after Jesus gives to his followers the bread and the cup, signifying his body and his blood, which is given to them. And this dispute about greatness occurs right after Jesus explicitly tells them, I'm going to suffer, but I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you, and then I suffer. This is the new covenant in my blood. And this battle for greatness happens when there's this tension in the room for Jesus has just let them know that one of them is going to sell him out. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, Jesus says. I mean, can you imagine uh, the 12 of us has been together for three years now? Day in and day out, we've seen countless miracles, heard matchless messages. We've witnessed the blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, and the poor having the good news preached to them. We've seen horrible tax collectors and even harlots come to Jesus in repentance and be made entirely new. We've eaten bread and fish that were multiplied before our very eyes as Jesus tore from that same loaf, and it never seemed to get any smaller. And what is the theme of Jesus' preaching? But the kingdom of God is finally here, and we have each left career, family, home, because we have each believed something about this Jesus. There's a camaraderie here, an experience that in the history of humanity, only us 12 have really had the honor of enjoying Jesus like this. And here it is that he has just told us that he's going to suffer, his body and blood given for us, and yet also that one of us is going to betray him. Can you imagine the tension in this room? You know, most people, when confronted uh, with the possibility of error or being wrong or doing wrong or, or you sinned in this and that way, most people have enough pride within their hearts and enough lawyer-like tendencies that their immediate reaction is usually defensiveness. What? You got it wrong. Betrayal? Not me. You got it wrong, Jesus. I mean, haven't we proven enough? Haven't we left enough behind? I mean, the 12 of us in this room, this is SEAL Team 6. Or, or at least, I know it can't be me. I don't know about them. And at that point, many would begin to suspiciously look around the room for the weakest link. Maybe it's him. You know, I always did have this feeling, gossip, 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 gossip. There's enough pride in most people's hearts that out of these 12, I mean, obviously, eliminating myself, the focus would be upon which one of these other ones is the betrayer. And it's often in these moments where we're in the most danger, aren't we? When we begin to suspect everyone else but ourselves. That's usually a spiritual low point. And Pastor Dave, I think, is going to touch on some of this in the next passage, which contains Peter's response that sounds just like that. But notice that this is not what the disciples are doing here in this very moment. They are actually taking in this scene, and they are really feeling the weight and the gravity of these words of Jesus. There's a betrayer. And rather than being defensive and suspicious of everyone else but themselves, they are actually reflective and inquisitive of themselves. I mean, Luke here, he says that they began to question one, one another, which of them it could be. Mark sheds more light on the nature of this questioning in chapter 14 and verse 19 of his gospel, that they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And could it be me? You know, the disciples are famous for blundering and 
speaking out of turn and having so much wax in their ears that the words of Jesus just can't seem to penetrate. But here it is, I think, we have one of their highest moments in their self-suspicion and honest humility for the betrayal of Jesus Christ uh, is the worst of sins imaginable, especially considering our proximity to them. And their response to the reality of it is, is it I? Because somehow I know that I may not be above it. Could it be me? Uh, because I understand the nature of my own iniquity. This is a spiritual high point of what I think is true and broken humility and the feeling of the gravity that the suffering Jesus who gives all of himself to me, is there something within my heart that would cause me to actually betray him? We're often at our best when we ask these questions earnestly of ourselves. Uh, This is a spiritual high point. And then what is it that happens within the span of a single verse? And they began to question one, one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this next verse, a dispute also. I mean, what an also that is. What a conjunction that is. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And here we have that ugly bend that can rear its disgusting head in even the most spiritual of moments. Which one of us is a traitor necessary to contemplate? But back to the main program, which one of us is the greatest? I mean, it's almost comedic if it weren't sadly true. That right next to genuine humility and a spiritual high point, we find pride and vanity right there with it like sweet waters and bitter proceeding at the same time out of the same fountain, Matthew Henry says. What a self-contradiction in the deceitful heart of man, humanity. I mean, isn't that crazy how inconsistent these two things are, and yet they can somehow coexist within the same heart? And this isn't the first time they argued like this. Luke 9, verse 46, after the transfiguration of Jesus, after they witness his shining glory, and after Jesus clarifies again, I'm going to be delivered unto death. What happens? Almost verbatim, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Brothers and sisters, one thing we have to do, uh, one thing we must know about ourselves I think if we're ever going to make progress in the Christian life, is that we have this bend within our hearts towards self-seeking, personal aggrandizement, self-centered ambition, this desire for admiration and glory. We must understand that it's firmly rooted within each of us and not pretend that it doesn't exist. Our problem is pride. And it can manifest itself in thousands of ways, and it doesn't feel all that deadly because it is altogether common. You know, it's not that these disciples are so strange that we can point the finger and wag it at them. It's really that they are so normal that we might probe the finger within our own hearts and discover that similar trajectory so that what is comedically obvious in them might unveil what can so often be less obvious within each of us. I mean, we all want people to know how great or distinct we are, even if we never argue about it. We love self-esteem. Even for those who seem to be humble, even they can have a hard time with someone else being recognized for humility instead of them. 
It can often be difficult to truly rejoice in another person's success without comparing because we always have this pride expressing itself in envy. Why does he get that? Not me. Why does she have what I can't? I want what they have. I don't understand why I don't get it. I'm better than them. We each have this bend to get ahead, uh, to win, to have others beneath us so that we can enjoy the view from up here. And then when you get up there, you realize there's yet even another level above that one that you stay hungry for. Even in the church, we want to be recognized and applauded, admired for being how spiritual we are and how our children turn out and blah, 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 blah. With, again, this disappointment if someone else's life turns out better than ours because how dare they? I mean, this inclination within the human heart is why social media companies rake in billions of dollars because they have found a way to monetize vanity and capitalize on the age-old problem of human pride and the desire for recognition in our quest to be great. However it is, we want to define that. Brothers and sisters, again, we have to know that this can often be our default setting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, you remember this toy, Stretch Armstrong? You could stretch him out, this figure, and, and twist him and pull him up to like six feet across, and he always returns back to the same shape. And at a young age for me, it was utterly mind-blowing how no matter what you do to him, he always comes back to form. And brothers and sisters, unless we realize this form of ours, we're going to do very little to counteract it. And so we have here which one of us is the traitor, which one of us is the greatest, within the same breath. Two conflicting questions living right next to each other because we see in these opening verses this bend within our hearts towards the self-seeking, uh, aggrandizement, a desire to be admired and looked at in a certain kind of way, and which can even rear its ugly head in the most spiritual moments. We continue in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leaders as one who serves. <clears throat> For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here it is, Jesus, knowing our bend, gives to us a different view of greatness. He, he really redefines it here, and he does it by pointing to his own life, which stands in contrast to almost everyone else in the world that the Christian and the believers to have an altogether a contrary ambition than what it is that we see among the rest of humanity. And we know the rest of humanity was the same in the first century as it is today. Jesus says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, those in authority called benefactors. Gentiles here really meaning the unbelieving world. How do they function? That the higher you get, the more lordship you have. The more you rise, again, the better the view. The more you have, the more you flaunt. You get to recline at the table while someone serves you. You get to kick your feet up because you know what? You deserve it. And the mentality and the mindset here, uh, we're called benefactors because in our minds, we are the people of such caliber that we really make the world a better place. Pride. This is why in the ancient world, such greetings existed. Your royal, gracious highness as if to admit that our lives are better because of who you are and how high you're perched. It's not any different today. 
although it can express itself in different forms, but how we define greatness are those who make their glory most evident. And I don't know uh, how many of you guys here are basketball fans. Even those who are not, I'm sure you heard about uh, Kobe Bryant's statue getting unveiled this past week. I got to watch the ceremony. Uh, we're about the same age, and so I really grew up with him. And I think it was uh, much more meaningful because he passed away about four years ago, which made the ceremony all the more emotional. It was almost like a funeral. The speakers were selected to reminisce about these different eras of his and how great he truly was and how distinct he was from the rest. One speaker uh, said, the debate is settled. Kobe is a goat, greatest of all time. Now, that doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it's televised for a reason, because a lot of people looked at him as a role model. Kobe Bryant's shoes are still being released, and I would say that in the NBA, the majority of the players wear Kobe's. If I want to buy Kobe's, I can't. They sell out in milliseconds, no joke. And then you have to pay quadruple the price to resellers so that you can put your feet into the same shoes that he once wore. There are kids on uh, my son's Dane's basketball team who are too young to have ever seen Kobe, Kobe's career real time, and yet they still want those shoes. They want to be like him. And you know what they do? They buy fake Kobe's from China <laughs> because their real ones are too hard and too expensive to get. Now, whatever you believe about Kobe, good or bad, I'm remaining neutral here. The point is, we will always look to other people to define how we view greatness, always. We will always look to someone above us or someone we admire so that we can try and follow in their footsteps and put on the same shoes, so to speak, always. We don't think of greatness as this abstract concept. We need concrete models of people to follow. And frankly, it is that Jesus is telling his immediate disciples here and by extension, the rest of us that perhaps it is your definition of greatness is because you're looking at all the wrong role models. You look at rulers. You look at people who kick up their feet and get weighted on. You fawn over those who get served. You look at kings. You look at this and that CEO, athlete who beats their chest and then points up and then calls other people too small. You look at the people who are ahead of you in career with a desire to walk in those very same footsteps. You look here, you look there, and they all have the same common denominator, which is the same pride that we each deal with, which expresses itself in further self-advancement and a capturing of the kind of status that is prevalent in those people who have zero relationship with Jesus. We look and we look and we look and define greatness by what it is that we see. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, don't look at them. Look at me. Look at me. And we're so often looking at everyone but him. And I think it is because of this bend within each of our hearts, we will often find ourselves admiring the wrong people. But is there anyone greater than Jesus Christ? And we have the second person of the Trinity who humbles himself, Scripture reading this morning, Philippians 2, makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God himself, born in a manger, as a baby, living a life where he continually has no place to lay his head. Condescension. Look at Jesus' greatness. 
But even more than that, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The greatest one of all humbles himself most of all to give himself to death on a cross for the sake of sinners. Do you think that's great? Do we look at that with any kind of real admiration to the degree that that is what I want to be like? You know, this is one of the more difficult things in Christianity, I think, that we can look at our Savior hanging upon the cross and recognize the scene and, and, and say, this is altogether beautiful. And with his humility and self-giving, we can admire it as a very wonderful thing, even shed tears over it, and almost universally, whether you're a Christian or not, this kind of self-sacrifice is admired, especially when it's for the sake of others. But at the same time, it is equally and universally neglected as an actual way of life. We love to see it, but we never want to be it. And we can hang across in our home and sing of Christ's death in worship together as a church family and yet never, ever want to carry one of these crosses on our own. I like what Jesus has done for me, but I don't necessarily ever want to be like him in this way. And when we ask ourselves what we want most in this life, we often have some higher perch we hope to find ourselves resting on in the next three to five years. Rather than to use all that God has given to me to become a servant and to become a servant of all. And our brothers and sisters, in, in the kingdom of God, the greatest people are those who are the greatest servants. And the highest honor for any of us is that we would be like our Savior in real life. And we will never uh, really want to be like him until we look at him more and more and admire him, and worship him, so that we would seek to glorify him by living just like him and putting on the same shoes, so to speak. Uh, what is your current definition of greatness? And maybe you can ask that in your small groups this week or on the ride home for church. Uh, a harder thing to do, ask your children the same thing. What do you think greatness is? And they'll tell you what they tell you will probably be more telling of not only what's in their hearts, but also what's in yours. What is your current definition of greatness? I think we have to be honest. What do you aspire for, and what are we ambitious for? The answer to all of these questions will let us know if we are more like the Gentiles or we are the people of God. Looking to Jesus should change everything about how we define greatness Everyone else goes this way, but Jesus says, not so with you. If we're not vigilant and aware of the bend within each of our hearts, we will follow everyone else in this current of achievement or even hyperachievement culture and try and somehow make that consistent with Christianity, which it is not. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title, and dignity, and chariots, and horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. It is a man or woman who does not seek his own things, but the things of others. It is a man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. It's a man who, is, who spends and is spent, 
to make the vice and misery of the world less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, and to raise the poor. This is truly a great man in the eyes of God. And so Jesus, knowing our bend within our hearts, gives to us a different view of greatness here. He really redefines it. He points us to his own life, which stands in contrast to almost everyone else in the world, that we might have an altogether contrary ambition than what we see among the rest of humanity. We continue in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I want you to notice as we close this passage, the long-suffering and grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Long-suffering in how he describes his own life and amazing grace in how he describes his disciples. But look at how Jesus describes his own life. He defines his life as, as one of trials or temptations. You know, we rarely uh, ever get this kind of insight from the list of Jesus. You know, Jesus is one who never really complains. He doesn't vent even when he'd be entirely justified to do just that. And his inward struggles uh, really remain inward. They're rarely made public. We think of Gethsemane maybe, the cross, uh, his weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, but here we see uh, a glimpse behind the curtain. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And really it is that Jesus' whole life has been one of trials. You know, sometimes we think that Jesus got tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, and then a few years after that, he had a really rough passion week and dies a really bad death, but everything else in between is relatively normal. That's not the reality here. Jesus' life in its entirety has been one of trial and continuous assault. And here it is, at the end of his life, he looks upon his disciples with love in his eyes as he thinks upon all the sorrows and difficulties and pains they have accompanied him with. You've been with me. You've stayed with me the entire time. And we see here also this profound aspect of loneliness that's revealed. As Son of God, God himself, who previously immersed in the Father's love, surrounded by the angels singing his praise, is for a period of life on earth so lonely that only these 12 have been with him. I mean, at this point, even his own family isn't really here. And we get a glimpse of just how little anyone sympathized with Jesus. Now, we have his mind and his heart uh, so holy and kind, so brilliant and wise, which really serves only to make him lonelier. That separation from all the people around him stands all the more stark. You know, some of you guys are the only believers in your family. And at big gatherings, you sometimes feel lonely, don't you? That no one else seems to understand the truth or what happened in my life or any of these things. And you feel that loneliness. Now take that to the nth degree. As a son of God with perfect purity roams the earth and finds no one else to really understand them. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, first, because Jesus describes his own life as one of trials. But also, because the more we look at the nature of these kinds of trials, we again witness his own greatness. That the whole of his life, and not only the cross, but especially the cross, but the whole of his life is spent on serving those who least deserve it. 
And so we get this picture of this long-suffering and how he describes his own life. But we also see this amazing grace in how he describes his disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And if that's the only line we know about the disciples, and we haven't read the rest of Luke, we probably have this image of them that would be entirely inaccurate. These disciples are not all that like they think they are. It's only been a few years. The jury's still out. But here we see this grace in Jesus that despite their failings, and even in the middle of them arguing about which one of them is the greatest, we find the sweet voice of our Savior lauding them. You are those who have stayed with me. And he says that with genuine gratitude. I mean, what in the world? These guys are going to fall asleep at the prayer meeting in Gethsemane, not even 15 verses later. And Jesus still looks at his followers with these kind and gracious eyes, knowing each of our faults and every nook and dark little cranny of our hearts and knowing all, even more so here, Jesus will grant to them and by extension to us a kingdom that is his own, assigned by the Father to him only a seat at his table where we can celebrate and feast on his love and an authority that is truly his, and yet he shares with those who least deserve it that even these original disciples might in some way judge the tribes of Israel. What is going on here? Everything that is his becomes ours. A kingdom, a seat at his table, his own authority, himself, Hours and everything that is ours becomes his in the next hours. Our sin, our shame, our iniquity, our judgment, the wrath we deserve, it becomes all his. Is there anyone greater than Jesus Christ? Is there any greater calling than to magnify him in the way that we live our lives? Don't you want to be found among those who have stayed with him through thick and through thin that though we may fall short in a variety of ways, that we would be a people who want to give ourselves as much as we can to them, that our highest honor is to be like them, isn't it? In our families, in our marriages, to be so servant-hearted in our neighborhoods that we might be like Jesus so that others might see Jesus. And so this is a concept of greatness that is actually... Uh, easy to understand, but frankly, very difficult to apply because of the bend within each of our hearts unless we behold him. And it may be that there's nothing more revealing about what we truly believe in our lives than if we take this teaching to heart. Would you please pray with me? Now, Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, that everything else would dim out. We are bent to think like the world thinks, but by your grace, keep us close to you and enamor us with the love you have for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.